We are in the second last week of this series that we've been doing in 1 Corinthians, Redefining Radical. And uh, the Corinthian church has called themselves radical, but it's been sometimes radical gone wrong. Uh, sometimes it's been, we're so enlightened, how radical are we? No, they're not. You know, they're, we're so liberated, how radical are we? That's not good. Well, we're so open to the spirit that we swing from the chandeliers and go out of control. How good are we? How radical are we? Not quite. You know, there were some things that Paul had to, to pull in a line there. And, and I think even today we have to keep ourselves balanced. And, and um, what is radical? Well, the kingdom of God is a radical movement. And the, the call to repent and believe the gospel, that was definitely a radical thing. But understanding radical in its full extent and living out the radical kingdom way, is, uh, you know, it's, it's something that we have to do right and Corinth wasn't quite getting there. In the last, in this chapter 15 section, uh, both Peter and Ian have covered ground on this as well. This basically covers the doctrine of the resurrection. It's important to note that only Judaism and Christianity understood the concept of resurrection in the way we've been exploring it these last few weeks. Christianity had the idea much more formed than Judaism did. You know, in the Old Testament, there is definitely this resurrection idea coming out. Daniel 12 is one of those examples. In Jesus' day, it was actually debated a bit. There was actually a Jewish sect of which priesthood were members of it who denied any form of resurrection. So the high priest, Sir Caiaphas, was a Sadducee, someone who didn't believe in the resurrection. Imagine interceding for the people and not believing a key part of your people's doctrine. But of course we know that Jesus rose again. And Paul's gospel was one which would only be complete with the resurrection of Christ. If he didn't rise, then Christ was perhaps a nice guy, maybe a misunderstood hero, maybe a martyred prophet, but ultimately not one that anyone would place their eternal or their future hope in. Paul's Pharisaic heritage knew too well that he couldn't convince the average Jew that Jesus was the Messiah if a resurrection didn't take place. And he'd have less of a chance working with Gentiles too. The ancient pagan understanding of anything beyond death was rather limited. For many, life now was what we had and we made the most of it. For those who considered anything beyond that, the afterlife was one of ambiguity. It often, in fact, very rarely did anything physical actually be envisaged in any pagan understanding of life after death. At worst, the pagans, with their understanding of this, would live life like there was no consequence beyond. At best, they would live like their bodies and physical existence had little influence on what lay ahead. The ancient poet, Menander, born about 400 years prior to Paul's work, wrote a line, and it shows up in chapter 15, verse 32, for a pagan audience. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That line also shows up in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah. Jesus used the line in Luke 12 as well. 
in the scriptural perspective, all of these speak against living for the now with little regard for eternity. Keeping eternity in your sights as you live your life and considering the bigger picture of what life is about is what we're supposed to be doing, not just going eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die and live like there's no consequence. In the ancient pagan usage, it may have been a slogan used as gladiators had a final meal together before fighting beasts in the Colosseum. They would eat and drink and they would party it up the night before knowing that tomorrow this dinner table might not be populated quite the same way. It was a line often associated with a pagan group called the Epicureans, particularly known in Athens. And you can read about then when Paul was talking to the, the Mars Hill Assembly. You've got the Stoics and the Epicureans being the key members of that audience. Modern foodies will know it too because of the Epicurean idea. Menander's influence still had a presence in the ex-pagan Corinthian church. There were people attending church, sadly, much like there are today, who didn't have a correct understanding of the resurrection of Jesus or the future physical resurrection of all mankind. Acts 24 tells us that both the righteous and the wicked will rise on the final day to face the perfect judge that is the risen Christ. Some in Corinth were denying that Jesus physically rose. Paul answers this in chapter 15, verse 4. Jesus rose on the third day. If there was no resurrection, then Paul could easily have written more logically for the pagans that his spirit just went off into the afterlife that same day. It didn't take three days for a spirit to leave a body. But instead, he said, no, on the third day, Jesus physically rose. And he did this with more than 500 people actually being witness of the risen Christ. So it's not just a convoluted thing. Others in the church, in their limited pagan mindset, simply stated that there was no resurrection for us to come. No other belief system taught this. It was inconceivable. But Paul simply states otherwise, it's coming. And if you don't have this understanding deep within your spirit, then your faith doesn't have the substance it's supposed to have. The challenge put forward to, to Corinth is to consider this, and to us today. Either Christ physically rose as the first of what is to come, as not just a solitary anomaly, but something that we can all look forward to in the last day. Either that happened, or Jesus didn't, and we won't. Paul tells us to go all in on the first option, is to respond to the gospel. That's the gospel he preached. And at the start, it's the gospel that Corinth received. 
Paul says they received it and they took their stand on it. And they were therefore saved on the basis of this belief they had. To reject it, to deny it, is to live a nice life because the church teaches nice religious things. But ultimately, we'll be living a pointless and hopeless one, no matter how religious we get, if we don't believe in the resurrection. And finally, we get to the story of a great final victory. And uh, today's passage, the part of chapter 15, as it was divvied up by the elders and wrestled over and jumped on by other preachers, I've been left with the final eight verses today. So we're going to start at verse 50 today and going to read the last part of chapter 15 together. So if you've got your Bibles, let's open up. Let's start at verse 50 and we shall read on. Verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Wow loaded Paul has already written I'm still not oh there we are Paul has already written to the Corinthians about the kingdom of God it's the same thing he wrote about in chapter 6 when he speaks of the sort of people who will and won't inf- um, inherit that it is the future hope where Jesus returns and establishes his eternal kingdom on a new earth Paul reminds the church back in chapter 6 that they are inheriting this because they were bought with a price. In other words, the death of Christ made a way for their kingdom inheritance. We had the chance to make heaven our home, the kingdom when it comes in its fullness, for us to inherit inherit that, that is made possible because of the death of Christ. And this then comes with a call to demonstrate the kingdom as best we can in this world. Our mission at all times is to announce and demonstrate what the kingdom is all about. And to invite everyone to come under the reign of Christ. And the holy way of life we live plays a major part of that. If we announce the kingdom, if we publicly claim an allegiance to faith in Christ, but we don't live like it makes a difference in us, our demonstration fails. Our announcement is lacking power. 
But the resurrection is equally a key in this. Because the resurrection creates the means by which we actually make that entry. We are saved and we have hope. But we're still stuck in a carnal sleeping bag. This thing, we're stuck in it. This carnal body and what it represents about our nature, what Paul calls flesh and blood, is not going to be the part that inhabits that. But there is going to be a physical resurrection, a body not unlike this one in form, but it's going to be free from the baggage of, that sin places on us. The holy demonstration of the kingdom we show now in other words, the journey of transformation that we continually exhibit today, the bits where people notice that Jesus is making a difference in our life today, these are things which in that anticipate the complete transformation that we will experience at the resurrection. Now, as we think about that, I suggest that Paul knows as he's writing this, that his he's immediate audience and future generations, this is going to melt their heads a little bit. The more we think about it, the more it's going to consume our thoughts and it's going to capture us and it's going to go, how can these things be? And I know Paul knows this because he uses the word mystery here to describe the process. Listen. I tell you a mystery. Biblical mysteries are known by are things known by God all along. There will be things that are always better known by God. And they are things which God reveals to his people gradually as they try to get their finite minds around eternal concepts. Has anybody ever just stopped and thought of a timeline and tried to picture eternity through it? Have you ever tried to think of forever? Have you found that you can't ponder forever? Because it's a mystery. <laughs> we have a finite concept. We cannot think of eternity. Job 11.7 asks a rhetorical question. Can we fathom the mysteries of God? Can we probe the limits of the Almighty? These are great questions to ask and the, <laughs> the answer is no. And yet our Christian faith is loaded with them. The Trinity is a mystery of our faith. Understanding in full, this understanding of the election of believers... Am I predestined? Have I got a full free will? How does that all work? How do I understand attention? Where's it all at? That's a big mystery of our faith. The gospel itself and the work of Christ is described many times by Paul. If you look at Ephesians, it's described by Paul as a mystery. And the full implications and the process of the resurrection is one of those as well, according to Paul in this chapter. The things that we accept by faith 
And we trust that we are going to see all these things in eternity in the fullness of what they really are. But we accept that now we can understand it as best we can because our minds just can't contain the mysteries of God the way we can't fathom them. The resurrection is one of these mysteries. By calling it this, Paul doesn't even try to tell the whole story of the resurrection we will go through because he can't fathom it either. But with all this in mind, he then goes on to talk about a few things that we should know in regard to it all. As we read these verses, we find a few things we need to take note of. Next thing is this. Christ will return as promised. That is definitely one of the things that Paul wants us to know here. Christ will return and life will continue until that return. There isn't going to be some dead wasteland for many years and suddenly God's going to go, oh gee, it's time to pick them all up now. Life is going to be as we know it and then it's not. In an instant, in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, a trumpet will sound. The trumpet, is it going to be a real trumpet? I don't know, but there is a a lot of apocalyptic sort of literature talking about the end being sounded with a trumpet. It's well-known literature of the time. We hear in the media that the world can't remain in the state it is forever. And in the natural, we can think that, but we also know that God's timetables and his agendas are perfect. Jesus will return before we've wiped ourselves out completely. In fact, as I think about that just now, if I, Jesus spoke heavily when he talked about the return. He spoke incredibly clearly about readiness. And he spoke about people who were thinking that my Lord delays his coming. And he was speaking about people who were getting complacent and letting their guard down and and actually doing life without looking towards the return of their master or the return of the bridegroom or or, or whatever the metaphor Jesus used in a number of times. Everything seems to be at a point where we get to a point where we think everything's fine. We're not at the end of our rope. We think that our master is delaying. So I think well before we think the end is coming. I believe Christ will return. Now, that's not a, one of those YouTube predictions and going, here's one of my false prophecies, here's the date. But it's just my two cents that says, you know what? Readiness means being ready now and at all times. Not just being waiting because, oh, gee, we're going to wait till the world gets a bit worse before we start really looking towards God again. Readiness now is going to matter. There will be some alive when he comes. We won't all sleep is what he writes. But when the kingdom comes in full, all will be changed in an instant. When the eternal kingdom is established on earth, when life as we currently know it ends, those who know the Lord among both the living and the dead will be changed from carnal to eternal, from mortal to immortality. That's the great mystery right there. As he goes on, he then thinks about God's final work against death. The scriptures will be fulfilled, Isaiah 25. 
On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. The shroud and the sheet are clarified in the next line. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord we trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That's the passage that Paul is quoting when he's talking about death being swallowed up in victory. Even as it was being written, the fullness of that was not known. But now, according to Paul, it was making perfect sense. The other quote he's, he's bringing there is Isaiah, Hosea 13. That passage actually speaks of more immediate judgment for a particular group of people. But Paul seems to see in the verses in the middle of all that a, a proclamation, even in that setting. A proclamation of hope. Basically, Paul is saying that death can do its worst. And its worst, as we all know through our experiences of grief, has a sting. For the lost, death may chalk up some winds. But ultimately, the pain the sting, the apparent finality, the apparent victory of death. Even this is going to be subject to Jesus and destroyed as his final enemy. And as a result, we will be the victors. For Jesus has already won his battle against it. And he will win the war for us. And as we get to the last few verses, we've got this long statement, 58 verses explaining the resurrection. A little bit repetitive in places, challenging in others. Verse 58 has this one word we must not ignore. Therefore... Therefore, and after that word, two things we must do in light of our understanding of the resurrection. Therefore, stand firm and let nothing move you. Take stock of the gospel that you received. What did you respond to? Did your gospel include the resurrection? Or does your gospel only stop at death? Jesus died for me. Awesome. I can inherit the kingdom. What about the rest? Jesus rose again. And that is my means of entry. I will rise too. Yes, he died for us. We are purchased by his blood. We're bought with a price. 
and Jesus physically rose, which is the first of what is to come for all of us. And the great mystery is that a physically risen human sits on the throne and will be our judge. And as resurrected people, we will face him. We don't just reach a spiritual state of awareness or awakeness. We don't just go to an ambiguous, better place. The eternal kingdom is not something we'll inherit or inhabit roughly somewhere up there. It will be here in a renewed and completely restored earth. A completely restored and pure, immortal, eternal body inhabiting a restored and renewed earth and with the kingdom of God and Jesus reigning supreme. We must reject the notion that once we're dead, that's it. That's a pagan concept. If there's no resurrection, as Paul has written, why go through the rigors of Christian living? Why go through the process of dying to ourselves and laying our lives down for the cause of Christ? If there's nothing beyond. Perhaps you're in this room today and maybe you're a little bit on the outside looking in with faith. Maybe you're here going, I'm hearing about this Christian faith, but I don't consider myself a Christian. If what I'm saying here about the resurrection is true, and you don't know Jesus today, what are you going to do about that? What decision will you make based on this? The resurrection of Christ is real. Where does, what will you do to respond to that? I'll come back to you in a moment. The other challenge is this. Give yourself to the work of the Lord. For the, Lord, the labor in the Lord is not for nothing. Now, some theologians suggest that somehow the things we do, such as creating arts and other things create, inspired by the Lord, may have some sort of eternal value in the kingdom to come. One writer goes as far as to say that some of that stuff will probably still be on display. That's a big out there mystery for me. That's pushing the mystery boundaries quite wide. Some people see their Christian duty as supporting environmental causes today because of what they're anticipating to come in a renewed earth, because of the resurrection to come. It's all part of the mystery. But as I think about this, I can make one statement that we can all agree on. There is treasure in the here and now, and there is treasure in the kingdom. And Jesus told us that. The Sermon on the Mount made that clear. There are things that we can put our hand to now which will be of eternal value. And there are things we do which essentially squander the time we have. The pagan thinking lives wholly and solely in the here and now. The lack of resurrection leads to a life where now is all that matters 
The Epicurean way emerges. Eat, drink and merry for tomorrow we die. The things we amass get more and more expensive. The income we're blessed with lines our own pockets and nothing else. The things the kingdom calls us to behold and make a difference in us and make a difference in will become folly to us. If there's no resurrection, morality wanes. Factions emerge. Many of the things we're seeing rebuked in Corinth become the standard even for people who call themselves Christians. But people in the kingdom are supposed to be different to that. The pagans say resurrection doesn't happen and they cast off restraint as a result. The Jews, for the most part, say a resurrection is and a new thing is something that's still afar off. But Christianity states that a new thing has already taken place in Jesus and is going to take place for all who follow him. His resurrection is evidence of our own. And following him means living in anticipation of what is to come. And because we anticipate new life, because we anticipate the ultimate of transformations, we live out that expectation and that anticipation now. We're supposed to be about the kingdom agenda now. We're saved and separated for that purpose now. We're empowered by the Spirit to live that way now. And we are assured here that nothing we do for the kingdom will be wasted. I don't know exactly how that, the fullness of what that means. But whatever we do for the Lord won't be wasted is something that we can bear in mind. Just let's put our whole being into the work of the Lord. Let's live out this kingdom way as best we can, this life. It will not be for nothing. There's an old song. I call it old because I was singing it in the 80s. <laughs> it was like a really short thing. Had about three chords and the song was over. It's a new and living way. Walk ye in it. It's a new and living way God has planned. Our resurrected Lord is living. And we will ultimately go the same way. In this life and in the time we have, the challenge set before us is to walk ye in that way. It will not be in vain. The resurrection matters. Let's live that way. And let's anticipate what is to come in the way we live now. Let's not cast off restraint. And let's live with the kingdom agenda in our minds at all times. The resurrection is a true story. It'll be true for us too. Let's take a moment to pray.